another bonus crossover for you, this time starring Dad. He spoke with Katherine Schifferdecker and Katie Langston of the absolutely fantastic podcast Enter the Bible, everything you wanted to know about the Bible but were afraid to ask. On each episode, they speak with a biblical scholar or theologian about some burning topic regarding Holy Scripture, and I have to say, the results are always insightful and inspiring. I am very choosy about my Bible podcasts, as you might suspect, but I am always excited when this one drops in my feed, and I always listen to it immediately. I hope you'll be inspired to subscribe as well after listening to this one with Dad. So check him out at enterthebible.org slash podcasts, or of course, on whatever app you're using to listen to Queen of the Sciences. This week, we'll have the first of two episodes Dad did with Enter the Bible. The topic is, how did the 12 tribes enter the promised land? Obviously drawing on Dad's expertise on the book of Joshua. In a couple weeks, we'll share a second Enter the Bible episode starring Dad. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Enter the Bible podcast, where you can get answers or at least reflections on everything you wanted to know about the Bible, but were afraid to ask. I'm Katie Langston. And I'm Katherine Schifferdecker. And our guest for this podcast is uh, Professor Reverend Dr. Paul Hinlicky. He's the Tice Professor Emeritus at Roanoke College in Virginia, and he's on the graduate faculty at the Institute of Lutheran Theology. And we are so grateful that he is uh, with us today and uh, willing to talk with us about an important topic. Thanks and welcome, Paul. Thank you very much, Catherine. And hello, Katie, to you too. I'm happy to be with you today. So Great. glad you're here. Uh, we have a question uh, for you, Paul, from a listener. And again, um, uh, for our listeners on the podcast, if you have a particular question that you would like to ask, just go to enterthebible.org. Uh, the question from the listener is this, how did the 12 tribes of Israel enter the promised land? And uh, related to that, what do we do with stories of violence in the Bible? Now, uh, we're asking you this question, Paul, because of course you're the author of a recent commentary on the book of Joshua in the Brazos Theological Commentaries uh, on the series on the Bible, uh, and it's really the book of Joshua that that is the one is the is the really problematic book for many Christians uh, because it it is the story of the so-called conquest of the land uh, as the children of Israel have left. Uh, Egypt left the bondage of slavery and wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. Now, uh, after Moses's death and under the leadership of Joshua, they enter the promised land. And there's many stories of, of conquest, of battles, of the Israelites um, uh, annihilating or defeating the people of the land uh, to take over the promised land. So like, aren't they, aren't they commanded to Catherine? Like right. the, the text is like, God says, go in there and don't spare anyone. Wipe them right. all out. Right. So that's a lot. Yeah. <laughs> it's a lot for us, but it's been a lot for believers from the beginning. <laughs> um, when I when I began working on Joshua, I read uh, the uh, commentary of the Church Father Origin of Alexandria, and of course he had a major uh, conflict with the rival Gnostic sects, who were saying that the God of the Old Testament is 
a violent and vengeful deity, uh, the author of this dark and uh, 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 worthless world, and he's not identical with the father of our Lord Jesus Christ. <clears throat> Excuse me. So Origen is, among other church fathers, dealing with this uh, deviation from the uh, fact that Jesus, of course, addressed that very God of Israel as his own Abba Father and experienced himself being addressed by that Abba Father as beloved son. So there is a real problem here if you cannot affirm that Jesus, the God of Jesus, is the God of Israel. That's a big issue, isn't it? Of it course, is the big or, issue. Origen had knew the offense people took at the book of Joshua. When he got to chapter 8, which is this litany of slaughter, he said, I mean, at that point, Origen says, I know many of you are sick and disgusted with hearing all about, about all this blood and violence. And wow. he says, now we have, to, we have to find a way of reading this that is proper for Christians. Uh -huh. And I think hermeneutically, that's exactly right. Um, there's no such thing, I think, as a literal reading of Joshua. There's uh, various Jewish readings of Joshua, and there are various Christian readings of Joshua. But anyone who says this is a plain sense meaning of the text that sets aside its place within these religious traditions that flow out of Israel, I suppose you could include Islam too there, though Islam, I think, more or less ignores the conquest. They don't really care for the idea that God chose the Jews right. as his own people. Yeah. But anyway... So to me, the, Catherine, the first question we have to ask about Joshua yeah. is what kind of literature is this? Yes. yes. Always so a good question. Yeah. What kind of literature is this? And as I worked on the book of Joshua, it became very, very clear to me that this book was composed after the exile, centuries, maybe five, six, seven centuries after the purported history that is being represented in the book. Yeah, And when you take that issue of the exilic context of the composition, it becomes clear that the burning issue for the author and the first readers is, we have lost the land that the Lord once gave our ancestors. And now we are, as in the book of Ezra, and now here we are, slaves in our own land under the hegemony of foreign kings and leaders. Okay, and just, so... And just to quickly interrupt for the um, for our listeners that might not be familiar with the whole sort of kind of basic narrative arc of the Old Testament, when we talk about the exile, we're referring to the time after the Babylonian Empire came in and kind of took over uh, <laughs> yeah. the land and kicked a bunch of the people, not everyone, but kicked a bunch of people out and made them go to Babylon and like took over their land and their you know households and that sort of thing right and it and exactly. that was a very and that was a very important moment in the history of the jewish people because they had been promised this land and now they didn't have it and so it was like this question of you know can we is god faithful right. to us or, so we're or, talking like five five eighty seven BCE, and 
the so they yes the 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 elite of the land or many of mo, all the leaders of the land at least are taken into exile in Babylon. They are able to return in 539 after Persia defeats uh, the Babylonian Empire, but it's still the case that is what we call Israel today uh, or Judah in those days is uh, under the authority, uh, under the control of various empires, the Babylonian Empire, then the Persian Empire. So so what you're saying, Paul, is this book of Joshua, the story of the conquest, which literally is set in the time right after the Exodus or the wilderness wanderings, Mm -hmm. in actuality is written for a people who are... um, who are under the control, who are uh, who are oppressed by a series of empires uh, and need to hear a word of of hope, right? Exactly. The, 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 and it's also a burning question, not just of theodicy, of the faithfulness of God. It's also a burning question of if anthropodicy. How do we hmm. how do we justify the human behavior which has led to the loss of hmm. the of, of the land of Israel? Right. And that's where I think Joshua becomes very interesting. When we understand that it's a theological text, it is primarily a theological text that's trying to answer the question, why have we become just like the Canaanites whom our ancestors under Joshua defeated? And that's a profoundly probing question, I think. So to get get to the to the meat of the matter, I would like to tell readers, uh, make a point with uh, listeners about this. If you like the Exodus, if you like God liberating the Hebrew uh, uh, refugees uh, at the Red Sea or the Sea of Reeds, whatever that was, uh, if you like that and you like the song of victory that Miriam sings in Exodus 15 about the Lord is a warrior, the Lord is his name, if you like the rescue from the slaveholders, you've also got to like the book of Joshua because it's exactly the same conflict that's being pursued. And even historical studies here, I think, are indicating along these lines that the Canaanite, the walled Canaanite city-states were under the hegemony of the Egyptian empire at the time of the tribes were entering the land of Israel. So the book of Joshua is representing the the so-called conquest as an extension of the Exodus. The Exodus is continuing in the defeat of the walled Canaanite city-states. Now, in that context, you know, we have the issue of violence, uh, which is so appalling to uh, contemporary readers after the appalling 20th century, continuing today with various episodes of genocide. Yeah, And here we have to, of course, put on our historical imagination and understand this in the context of the ancient Near East, where in wars of conquest, standard practice was to slaughter the adult male population to to, uh, disarm the conquered people so there would be no possibility of resistance. But then what became of the women and the children? They became slaves. They were enslaved. That was the that was how conquest worked. And then, of course, you could you could grab up all the booty and so forth. 
Now, what's so surprising about the law of harem, that's the Hebrew word for this ban, or we translate it as the ban or whatever, um, um, uh, um, devoted to destruction, I think is another um, translation. What's so interesting about that is it absolutely undercuts the secular motives for wars of conquest. If you can't Mm. take the women and children as slaves, if you cannot possess their property as booty, what's the point of going to war? Mm. (laughs) You know, so the the rule of harem that so offends us with its massive command to exterminate every living thing is very, it makes it very clear that Israel is only to fight under the direction of the Lord and the Lord has his own purposes in this battle. And that's, I think, another essentially theological point to grasp here. Do you remember the episode uh, just before the fall of Jericho where Joshua is suddenly transported and there he is in, in Jericho somehow? It, it's really kind of mystical. Uh, and he meets the captain of the armies of the Lord standing in front of him holding yeah. a sword. And it's a very ominous picture. And Joshua immediately falls to the ground and then he very meekly says, are you on our side or are you against us? And basically this mysterious figure replies, neither I'm not on your side and I'm not on the other side. I'm on my own side. And that's an indication that Israel is to fight for the Lord's purposes and never for its own. And so all these battles that we see in the book of Joshua amount to this. They amount to the dispossession of the kings of the Canaanite city-states and the destruction of their walls. Hmm. And then the rest of the performance of the command to exterminate is in the book of Joshua is very ambiguously fulfilled. In fact, it proves impossible to fulfill. And the most important narratives in Joshua, Rahab, the prostitute, and the Gibeonites, are evidence that the foreigners in Canaan were assimilated into Israel. They were not universally exterminated. And these very significant narrative episodes indicate that the Lord has his own purposes, which he's accomplishing. And it means the Lord is destroying walled cities with their kings. And Israel is to be his people under his kingship and not to imitate or act like the Canaanite city-states, as I said, an extension of Egyptian hegemony. So you see, if you put all this together, and I'll stop here, if you put all this together, you see how in, in the exile, the theologians writing the book of Joshua were saying something like this. Why did we lose the land that the Lord once gave our ancestors? Answer, because we became just like the Canaanites that the Lord was dispossessing. Hmm. That's that's really helpful, Paul. Wow. I remember when I when I uh, read your book, um, you talked about very similarly to what you're you're just saying. You know that that you shouldn't read or one shouldn't read Joshua in a literalistic sense. Uh, but a literary spiritual reading. And you talked about the gospel of Joshua, the good news of Joshua being uh, that the Lord fights for us, you know, the uh, talking about the uh, the Lord who fights for us. Um, and I was reminded uh, of a, a class that I taught 
several years ago now that included Joshua. It was a, a class on the first several books of the Old Testament. And when we got to Joshua, which is not one of my favorite books, I, I was kind of apologetic for the violence, right? And there was an African, uh, African-American woman in the class who kind of listened to that and listened to all of us kind of moaning, uh, bemoaning the violence in Joshua. And finally, she spoke up and said, look, I don't know what's wrong with you all. I don't know what you, why you have a problem with this book. She said, for my church, for my Black church, uh, this is good news, right? Because Joshua, mm-hmm. Joshua uh, tells us that God is faithful and that God will deliver on his promises uh, to, you know, to give us what he has promised us. So that it, you're talking about that just reminded me of that conversation. You know, mm-hmm. Catherine, I know in the new uh, uh, hymnal, Evangelical Lutheran Worship, or is that, is that what it is? Yeah, yeah, the, yeah, the, yeah, the, yeah. the maroon one. <laughs> all, all of the m- songs of, of militant grace have been washed out. Mm-hmm. You can't sing Lead On, O King Eternal. Or you can't sing "Onward, Christian Soldiers." Or you, can, yeah. I mean, why not exclude "A Mighty Fortress Is Our God"? That's about the most <laughs> militant hymn that's ever been written, you know. So this theme, uh, my theological friend Philip Ziegler teaches at Aberdeen in Scotland, wrote a wonderful book called "Militant Grace," which huh. is uh, um, uh, an account of. J. Lewis Martin and Ernst Kaseman and so forth, and their rediscovery of the apocalyptic frame of the of the Pauline gospel. Uh, and this theme of militant grace is exactly what your African-American student, I think, was reflecting, that yeah. God's grace is not a universal God is nice to everything no matter what, or God is not a problem, just relax, you know. Yes, I think God is above all a problem. God is a huge problem, and it might be a very huge problem for us. Uh, Martin Luther King preached a sermon once when he compared the contemporary West to the rich young ruler who went away sad. And the point of the book of Joshua is God fights for us by sometimes fighting against us. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, and it I mean, and it just depends so much on on what from what perspective you're reading it, right? Like if you're reading right. it from the perspective of the of the powerful, then it can be a very dangerous text and has been a dangerous text in the hands of various movements, including oh, westward sure. expansion, right? Uh, right? But if you're reading it from the perspective of the oppressed, uh, you know whether that's post-exilic Israel or Judah or whether that's uh, the black church, you know, in the 20th and 21st century in America, uh, then you hear a very different kind of message there. Then it's, it's good news that God fights for us uh, and, that, and that God is faithful to God's promises. Yes, and the Romans, think of Paul in Romans 8, if God is for us, who can be against us? Yeah. And the whole litany of the sufferings of the early Christians that, that is being discussed there. And so forth. So I think that I think you're absolutely right about that. Um, that's why uh, in South Africa, the book of Joshua was, was used for for very notorious and per- nefarious purposes mm. under apartheid. 
right? And I'm sure in the American conquest of the American West, we can say the same thing. But that's why it's so important for pastors and theologians to master the book of Joshua so that, I I really mean that, master the book of Joshua so that they can uh, interpret it properly and point out abuses of it. Mm. I think... um... I I think one reason that it's difficult for us to wrap our minds around, at least in our culture, uh, sort of, um, especially like white, maybe generically liberal culture or something like that, is um, we don't, we actually don't much like the idea of like an us versus them sort of dynamic, like a for something and against something else. Um, I think we kind of have this idea that, you know, all roads lead to Rome. You know what I mean? Like you believe your thing. I believe my thing. Like um, we don't need to have, you know, these sorts of divisions Um, and I think there is some wisdom to that as far as it goes in terms of like trying to live in peace in a pluralistic society. And also I think as people of faith, um, there are things God says yes to, and there are things God says no to, and maybe we would do well to remember that sometimes. Well, I think, of course, I think, you know, there's the universal law of Christian love, which means that Christians are obligated to regard all as precious creatures of the one God, and therefore people, neighbors to whom love is due. So I think that ought to, you know, that, that, I think that's a much better way of accounting for, um, rather than uh, Minnesota nice, if I can yeah. be a little bit. <laughs> A little bit uh, are you sarcastic. Saying, are you saying passive aggression is yeah. not actually love, Paul? Yes, I think, I, I think oh. that if you live in a certain kind of neighborhood and put up a sign saying all are welcome, yeah. this, is, this is just hypocrisy beyond telling or something yep. like that. Okay. Yep. Yep. So I, I, I don't mean to be polemical. I just want to no, say. No, that's the real thing, yes. Our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against angels and powers and principles principalities of wickedness in heavenly places, Ephesians. The apocalyptic perspective is really necessary here to see that the conflict between good and evil transcends us. It's over our heads. Hmm. And that on the ground, our participation in good is that we are not overcome with evil, but we overcome evil with good, Hmm. as Paul says in Romans 12, right? So that we've really got to get the proper kind of perspective on these issues. But the gospel that the Lord fights for us is a militant gospel. And I think a lot of us have, uh, in our uh, alienation from the Hebrew Bible, Old Testament scripture, have really fallen away from that perspective and how important I think it really is. I'd like to ask one more question, Paul, and I know we're getting close to time here, but in your book, you talk about the latter-day Joshua, I don't know, or the other Joshua. The second uh, Joshua. The second Joshua. Thank you. I've forgotten your, your terminology. Can you say a bit more about that? Yeah, that really comes from Origen's commentary on Joshua, in which he is taken by the fact that the Septuagint's translation of the Hebrew uh, Yeshua, is that how it is? Yeshua? Yehoshua. 
Yehoshua, right, yeah. is Jesus, which is exactly the same name in Greek for Jesus. Mm-hmm. And so Origen, Origen says this is this cannot be an accident. There's got to be there's got to be a meaning to this coincidence, and um, he sees therefore Joshua as a messianic type. And as I did the commentary, I saw two features in the book of Joshua that that seemed to make that exegetically credible. Number one, Joshua never. Uh, uh, walks away from becoming a king. Mm -hmm. Uh, Joshua does not accept any kind of personal authority for himself or his dynasty. Uh, And when he's done, he hands on the leadership. So Joshua is one, they tried to make him a king and he flees into the wilderness to quote John, the gospel of John, right? There's There's a real analogy there between the kind of servant leadership and at the end of the book, he's awarded the title Eved Yahweh, Servant of the Lord. And that's exactly how Joshua is a genuine uh, foreshadowing of the second Yahshua, Joshua, this Jesus. And the other thing is the remarkable story about the sun standing still, the mm-hmm. sun standing still in the oh, battle. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And the, the text comments nothing has ever happened like this, that the God obeyed a human being, that Joshua prayed and the sun stopped and God obeyed the command of Joshua. And the text points out a man commanded God. That's right there. And it's in the text, right? And I think that too was a kind of a foreshadowing of the messianic uh, character of the gospel narrative regarding Jesus. Where we see God in uh, human flesh, God as man, yeah, fully human, fully divine, yeah. Well, thanks, thanks for uh, talking about that too. I know um, that's obviously a Christological reading, a, a Christ-centered reading of Joshua, but one that, uh, as you said, dates back to the early church and is important for Christians to uh, to to talk about as well and to understand. Amazing. Well, thank you so much, Paul. Appreciate uh, appreciate that insight. I think that's really helpful um, and thought provoking. And I hope that uh, those of you who have been with us today uh, have enjoyed this episode of the Enter the Bible podcast. A reminder that you can get more resources, reflections, commentaries, all kind of stuff on our website, enterthebible.org. Uh, and of course, please um, share if you uh, if you enjoy this podcast. Please share it with a friend. Rate and review us on your favorite podcast app. We'll catch you next time.